podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm The world's deadliest assassins are already dead. A shadowy group of killers for hire is eliminating world leaders, crime lords, and CIA agents. Inexplicably, the deceased contract killers have the DNA of people who are long dead. CIA agent John Clooney devises a dangerous plan to capture a shadow killer alive. Contract a hit on himself. John Wessex, The Shadow Killers, is the second book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Take a psychedelic circus journey to the dark side of the moon with Bow and Arrow Presents Dark Side of the Circus, a psychedelic circus show set to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Playing for one weekend only, September 16th through 18th at Dance Mission Theater. Tickets available now at darksideofthecircus.brownpapertickets.com. Mutiny Radio listeners can get a $25 ticket with promo code MUTINY420. Bow and Arrow will see you soon on the dark side of the moon. It's your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th, 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Drive me nearly frantic I think they're all full of pap History's making Nations are quaking Why sing of stars above For while we are waiting Father time's creating New things to be singing of Sing me a song With social significance All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it, appealing with feeling and meat in it. Sing me a song with social significance, or you can sing till you're blue. Let meaning shine from every line, or I won't love you. Sing me of wars and sing me of breadlines. Tell me of front page news. Sing me of strikes and last minute headlines. Dress your observation in syncopation. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must get hot with what is what or I won't. 
what a song that's satirical Putting the mirror into miracle
Saturday morning, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., we come at you with labor news, labor opinion, labor history, all things labor, uh, by, for, and about the working people of the world, the true majority. As usual, we played some music of social significance and the song that was called exactly that, music of social significance from a musical produced by members of the Ladies International Lady Garment, Ladies Garment Workers Union, played in Broadway for several performances. That song was... Music of Social Significance. 
or you can sing till you're blue. Songs that mean something. Songs that go about changing things. That's the kind of music you'll hear on this show, Labor and Love Radio. We had Donna Summer singing Hard for the Money, and that's sort of setting up uh, one of our features this week. We lost a writer named Barbara Ehrenreich. If you're not familiar with her, listen up, because um, we're going to feature a talk about her most famous book, Nickel and Dime, where she actually spent several months working as a marginal worker, low-wage worker. Her conclusion is that these low-wage workers, like the ones referred to in this song by Donna Summer, are supporting us in our life. Then we had Rock Me. That's a little bit of nostalgia. Sister Rosetta Tharp. A blues number. Rosetta Tharp, one of the real pioneers of the electric blues guitar. We played uh, Didn't It Rain several times on this show. This is Labor and Love. And my name is Bill Morgan. I'm a member of not one, but two unions. And I want to welcome you to Labor and Love Radio, the show that tells you how it is, the show that tells you what's what. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, which is happening all the time. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to have unions. That for you. Only going to do you good and cut into their profits. All over this country now, low-wage workers are uniting, demanding better treatment, demanding better lives in the form of unions. And of course, that will be a struggle to live in a country that does not protect its workers, that does not care for its workers when compared to the interests of the rulers, the ruling class, the 1%. Let's see here. I would like to get to some of our credos. 
And these are sort of the things that we believe, that I believe. Um, things that relate to, say, immigration. <clears throat> What's the story about immigration? Who does it, who does an anti-immigrant agenda serve? Does it serve us? Does it serve the few or the many? Here's one from Robert, Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor. And this relates to the Dow Jones average, the stock market. Reich tells us, your, rem your reminder that the richest 1% own half of the stock market and the richest 10% own almost all, 92% of it. So when people brag about the stock market, they're not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. Simple thing. When you stop and think about it, Here's one from Utah Phillips about child labor, which we talked about a lot last week. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the southeast and the northeast. Why? Because we organize. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. <clears throat> and here's the best argument I know of for labor education for kids. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no, no fruit. So think about it. Think about it. Think about that little kid you knew. Say you know a little kid or you have a little kid. Think of them digging in the coal mines. Think of them shucking, standing around while their parents shuck oysters. Think of the moms who gave their kids opium so the kids would sleep all day while their mothers and fathers went to work. All those things are real. Ah, let's see. Let's see what else we got. Maybe something else. Okay. 
Let's take a look at... Uh, here's one about women and the whole brouhaha over women's bodies. Men want to control women's bodies. Men want to be able to insist that women have babies. And the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape. That's when you know it's a war on women. <laughs> Pretty good one. That was a good one. Let's see what else we got. Couple more. Here's the one about immigrants. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Really, think about it. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall deport the illegals bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Right. You're poor because some guy came here from Mexico or some woman came here from Mexico or some child came here from Mexico to find work so they could live, so they could feed their families. That's the problem. The real reason we're all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Use your brains. You're not poor because of another poor person. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. So there. <laughs> Okay, that's Facebook, but. Okay, well, that's some credos, and um, let's get on with the show now. Radio Labor is our worldwide labor look. Look at, at the condition of labor working people all over the world. This one talks about the world's largest women's trade union. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Seamarie Ainsborough. Women denotes many things, a mother, a sister, a wife, and many more relationships. But in all this relationship, her key role as a worker is lost. That is Manali Shah, the union coordinator for India's Self-Employed Women's Association. Known by its acronym SIWA, the association is the largest independent women's union in the world, with 2.1 million members. Ms. Shah spoke to a webinar organized by the British Trades Union Congress about SIWA's activities in support of women workers in India. The government and all the stakeholders, employers, contractors, have overlooked women's identity as the worker. 
at Seva, we are a central trade union, national trade union, and one of the largest women workers movement was formed with this very thing to provide voice, visibility, and validation to the women workers of informal sector. We were established in 1972 with the goals of full employment and self-reliance. Full employment means work security, income security, social security, health care, child care, insurance, and shelter. Self-reliance means that the women workers should be collectively and independently autonomous. In India, 93% of the total workforce are from the informal economy, out of which 50% of the workers are self-employed. Today, 2.1 million women workers from 18 states of India have joined us in the women's labor movement, making it stronger and stronger every day. But let me tell you that it's not easy. Even today, our leaders and organizers have to explain to the women repeatedly that they are workers, along with being wife, mother, and that they are contributing to the economy. Our, our struggle started with creating awareness amongst women workers of her identity as the worker and her contribution to the economy. But now, our women workers members are aware of their identity as the worker and are empowered to negotiate for the rights with different stakeholders. Let me talk about the home workers. There are 260 million home-based workers worldwide. It uh, represents 7.9% of the global employment and 56% of them, that is 147 million, are women. Home workers in South Asia are 67.5 million, out of which 41.5 million are in India. That constitutes 9% of the total employment in India. Home-based trades are predominated by women and children. Their homes are their workplace and they are invisible. I would like to recall here the struggle for home-based workers. When we first approached the labor commissioner in my state for the proper payment, of wages and wage increase for the for the BD workers, BD rollers. BD is a like it's a mini cigarette. We were told that they just pass the time at home. They are not the workers, and they started our fight for the home-based workers that led to ILO Convention 177 home worker on uh, on homework. We were the first one to coin the word home-based workers. But where are we today? Only few countries have ratified the ILO Convention 177 on home workers. Most of them are not. There are long global supply chains in the home-based trades, and the women workers are at the lowest. The wages decrease at each and every step but skills and technology does not trickle down, leaving these workers in perpetual debt. The condition of these home-based workers have deteriorated further in pandemic as the global supply chain was stopped, affected, and were apprehended that it will take long time to restore the supply chains 
making the home-based workers more vulnerable. We need to get together and fight for this decent livelihood for home-based workers. With the women, women's movement, we have always strived towards economic freedom of the women. Our founder, Ila Bhatt, always called economic freedom is the second freedom. Let me share you uh, our struggle for women's street vendors. In India, according to one estimate, 2.5% of the city's population are street vendors. More than 50% are women. In India, street vendor is time, is uh, street vending is time immemorial, and they provide like food, fruits, vegetables at affordable rates to the public at large. They usually congregate at one place, that is natural market. Uh, natural market have organically evolved because of mutual needs and de uh, of demand and supply. For example, for example, uh, fruits and vegetables near residential areas, toys and eatables near parks, and etc. But sadly, but sadly, they are evicted, beaten up, fined, and then wares destroyed or confiscated, and the natural markets are not considered into the development uh, development plan of CP. We struggle hard to protecting the rights of the women street vendors related to life and life, livelihood. The right to livelihood, the right to livelihood, the right to life and livelihood is fundamental right enshrined under the Constitution of India. It was our fight for the public place. We call the struggle from manicure to VJ chop. Chop means a marketplace in midst of the cities. Manichok is the business market, marketplace in my city from where our struggle started in 1972 and it ended in Chok, where parliament is situated in our capital, Delhi, where the street vendors protection of livelihood and regulation of street vending at 2014 was passed. We first filed a case for 313 women street vendors of Manik Chok Natural Market in the Supreme Court of India to establish their right to vend. After seven years of hearing, we won, and the, for the first time, right to vend was established in India. But still, the evictions continue. Fines and penalties were levied. We advocated for the national policy for the street vendors. It was the first step towards protection of livelihood of street vendors. It also established our right on public space. On other hand, we advocated with the police and the municipal authorities, uh, city council, that the harassment of women street vendors in the natural markets by police and other authorities should be stopped and the confiscated uh, confiscation of the perishable items should be immediately stopped. It was our first major victory. We were able to stop harassment, violence at the workplace way back in 1980s. 
Thereafter, national policy for the street vendors came into force. We were the part of task force set up for, for this by, by the government. This was a second victory for us, recognizing uh, of the right to carry livelihoods. But unfortunately, it was not implement, implemented as is like the legal backing. Then we advocated for the national law for the street vendors for protecting the regulating their livelihood. The central government was not keen to form such an act. They felt that it is the matter of state government and only state can frame the act. But we apprehended that it will depend on the will of state to enact the act. We continue our struggle for enacting the national law for street vendors. We took our big rally in 2014 in our capital and our street vendors went on hunger strike. We continuously lobbied with the spokesperson of the political parties. As the parliament was in session, in the morning we used to advocate with the members of parliament and we attended the parliament continuously and ultimately when we were in the parliament, a national law, the Street Vendors Protection of Livelihood and Regulation of Street Vending Act 2014 was enacted. It was unanimously passed by both the houses of parliament. It was a first ever act for protect, protecting the livelihood of the self-employed workers. We had, in fact, played a major role in drafting the act. The definition of the natural market as explained earlier was given by us. We introduced the concept of natural market and right over public space, which was provided for in the act. This was the overwhelming victory for us. After a battle of almost two decades, we were able to establish the right to livelihood. That was an enshrined in our constitution. Though this Though this, were, this we were able to provide license and identity cards to the street vendors. We considered license and identity card as an asset for women workers because they provide much needed voice and visibility to, other, to, to the workers, uh, to the invisible, poor, and vulnerable women street vendors. Our struggle did not end there. We were able to convince our government, the Ministry of Labor and Employment, to frame the uh, to frame to consider the street vendors as the self-employed workers and to constitute a social security board for them and provide social security to the workers. We have adopted a joint approach of struggle and development in Seva. Struggle through organizing and development through building the cooperatives. Save us street vendors members. Uh, uh, save us street members um, uh, members also form a cooperative and brought a shop. Uh, I remember the shop number 40 in the wholesale vegetable market. Um, 140 shops belong to a big traders, and we were proud that our poor women street vendors cooperative own a shop in the market. We had entered the mainstream. Our rural members were small for our small farmers and agriculture workers who grew uh, vegetables, vegetables. We tied them to the street vendors through the shop number 40 
it was a win-win situation for both our agriculture members and uh, vendors. The street vendors suffered much in the current pandemic. They could not earn livelihood in past two years because of lockdowns, partial lockdowns, night curfews, and other restrictions. The police and city council saw that the saw the vendors as the super spreaders and cleared them off. They have incurred debts and survival is a question. Our women street vendors showed strength even in this crisis. The municipal authorities approach us with the concept of e-rickshaw to supply fresh fruits and vegetables, meals and other necessities in the quarantine, containment and raid zone areas. Our women street vendors took up the challenge, draw e-rickshaws and supply fresh fruits and vegetables, milk and other necessities in the quarantine, containment and raid zone area fearlessly. They are also the true warriors. It was a major victory for us. Summing it up, we need to be together. Organizing is our key strength. We have to show our collective strength to win our battles. Our struggles are always truthful and peaceful. Though value-based organizing and following nonviolence, honesty, truth, truthfulness, we have made many achievements for rights of our workers' strength. Unity is our strength. was Manali Shah, um, <clears throat> coordinator of the British Trades Union Congress and the International Trade Union Confederation, describing a campaign to benefit uh, street vendors, mostly women, and uh, what a great victory that was. Play something now uh, from the Bituation Room. Francesca Fiorentini. Worse than Obama calling us extremists, he basically called us bad people. <laughs> I, I put the seat down every time, okay? And I hold doors for people. And I wipe the area around the sink in airplane bathrooms. You know how there's always water? I wipe it. How can you say I'm a bad person just because I think that people of color and white people should live in separate communities? Oh, my God. Just because I think immigrants bring disease. <laughs> like, you got to wonder, you know, fuck Hitler, but... Was he this fragile? Like, was he really all that fragile? Like, was he just like, and uh, all I want to do is gas the Jews and you're being really, really mean about it. The idea that he condemned us was worse than Hillary calling us deplorables, was worse than Obama calling us extremists. He basically called us bad people. <laughs> I put the seat down every time. Okay, okay so there's uh, 
Situation room. <laughs> Mr. Biden, in one of his speeches, said that the some of the people on the right were uh, bad people. They were interested in overthrowing the government, which they said they were. I guess you're not supposed to. I don't know. Let's listen to Beyonce. Yeah, I said it. Beyonce. Daddy Lessons.
job, B. Uh, I know. <laughs> I hope you uh, secretly recorded that. <laughs> it was. That's because we all sweaty. <laughs> we warm, we lose. We're like, oh, it's not recording. We're good. We're good. That's how it works. Nico's MIDI core pack. For just 60 
If you're 60 or older and in retirement or about to retire, then this is for you. Your retirement could be... All right, let's play one more on that set. Um, Natalie Means, of course, not ready to make nice. And before that, Natalie Means and the Chicks with Beyonce, Daddy Lessons. Dad's teaching their daughters to be tough and not to be victimized by a certain type of man. It's close to home. Um, Beyonce singing a sort of bluesy country sound with that one. And the chicks... uh, together with the chicks. All right, let's see what we got now. I wanted to play Golden Lands, Working Hands. We'll get to that. I want to play this interview. Um, About a week ago, we lost a writer named Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara Ehrenreich was wrote book after book about the lives of working people, especially people who are marginal and barely getting by in this dog-eat-dog economy that we have. While the rich make record. The rich go to Mars. (laughs) No, not to Mars. (laughs) The rich go to a space station or something. Anyway... This is uh, an interview, uh, not an interview, a review of the book Nickel and Dime, Not Getting By in America. Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America by Barbara Ehrenreich. So one of the reasons I chose this particular book um, actually was because of the cover art on it. Uh, On the cover of this book, there's a waitress looking kind of forlorn and trying to figure out sort of what's going on with her life. And I really identified with the cover more than anything else. And after reading sort of the back page of it, I thought this might be a book that really interested me, mostly because I spent almost seven and a half years waiting tables. And I kind of thought to myself, I'd love to hear someone else's perspective about how how you wait tables and make a living or how you work for low wages and make a living or or live off of that because while I was a student I worked as a waitress um, to help pay my way through school and I worked as a waitress full-time like that was my only job so I did a variety of things but I really just I thought that this topic in particular would just be really interesting so a little bit about Barbara Ehrenreich she has actually a PhD in cellular immunology, but she never became uh, a professor in that field, and she never really did any big research. She's really well known for being an outspoken advocate for a variety of subjects, including healthcare reform, um, equal wages. She considers herself a feminist, um, and she says that she became a feminist because of a negative interaction that she had on behalf of her husband, who was a teamster. 
Um, she's written about a variety of subjects as well. She's been published numerous times. Uh, the book that we're going to discuss today, Nickel and Dimed, is actually her most well-known book. Um, she actually was featured on on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart two or three years ago about uh, a book that she recently published. She's a pretty great public speaker as well, very highly thought of, just in general about her viewpoints on certain things. She's really not um, an expert in any one field, and I think that that's actually pretty fascinating about her, is because she's able to put her personal perspective on issues that affect a wide variety of people, and that's kind of what seems to make an audience connect to her. So about Nickel and Dimed. So the whole concept of this book is that Aaron Reich, Barbara, um, will pose as a low-wage worker. So this book covers three different scenarios. She moves to a town with enough money for a down payment on an apartment and kind of uh, startup costs, you know. She doesn't have a lot. She takes basic clothing, um, no food or anything like that, and she has a car. So then she goes and she finds a job as if she were someone that didn't have any work experience and no education. And she tries to see, one, if she can find a job, and two, if she can find housing. Then the end goal is to see, based on, the, on that criteria, if at the end of one whole month she has enough money to pay for a second month's rent. And that's kind of the end of it. She doesn't stay there longer than a month. She's just there for a month. She's there to work, um, make her wage, and do her business. Um, now, we're going to talk about a variety of the jobs that she held, but the big ones that she held that are the main focus of the book are that she was a maid, a waitress, and at the same time that she was a maid, she also worked as a healthcare attendant at a retirement home. And then in the last move that she makes, she works at Walmart. So, Barbara the Waitress. Um, Barbara the Waitress happens in Key West, Florida. She intentionally stayed very close to home for this one. Barbara's um, a resident of Florida and has lived there for many years. She didn't want to venture too far out of her comfort zone for this. At this point in time, Barbara's in her mid-40s when she's undergoing this excursion. Um, so she works. So she goes out and she finds uh, a small trailer that she can rent. Okay? It's not as close to town as she would like, but she's able to afford it because she has a car. And cars are important in this scenario because, as she finds out later, a lot of her fellow employees don't have cars. So she works as a waitress for $2.43 an hour. Now, this is in 1998. Something I want you to really think about is students that we work with now, say they're a server or a bartender at a bar, bartenders are sort of exempt from this role, but pretty much every waiter or waitress or server, as they're called now, that is a student attending one of our institutions, traditionally they make $2.13 an hour in Texas. Um, and I want you to really think about that. Barbara is working in Key West, Florida for two forty-three an hour in 1998. Think about the difference in the cost of living over the amount of time. I mean, you're really talking about the fact that it's almost been two decades since she did this, and servers in Texas are making $2.13 an hour. That's just crazy to me. 
how are our students expected to get by on such little pay? Um, because of these low wages, she works in a restaurant that's just really not very busy. And because of these low wages, she's basically just making her hourly amount. And she has to get a second job. Um, being sleep deprived, so she's, she's working from 2 to 10 at this one job. And um, before that, she's working this other another job at another restaurant that's like a buffet-style restaurant. Craziness everywhere. There's tourists. It is insanity. And one of the things that she's realizing is that, one, her body just can't keep up with the physical demands of needing to be somewhere at 10 a.m. and then working until 10 p.m. It's physically exhausting. Added to that, she only owns two pairs of pants in this scenario. So every other day, she has to do laundry, which is very costly um, as far as expenses and her personal time. Um, she actually writes that there are several days where she had a hard time taking her notes for the day because she was falling asleep at her computer. So this is where Barbara sort of clues in for the first time that there are hidden costs for being poor. So one of those is not having enough for a security deposit um, on, an, on an apartment means that many people who are working class, making minimum wage, live in motels or hotels, which are much more expensive than an apartment. I mean, you're talking about the difference between paying um, $450 um, for a month in an apartment and paying $50 to $60 a night at a hotel and being dependent upon making at least $50 every night so you have a roof over your head. In fact, one of the waitresses that Barbara works with at the restaurant where she's employed lives in her car and the manager lets her, um, their restaurant is attached to a hotel and the manager of the restaurant lets her go into the hotel and take a shower every day. I mean, and this is commonplace for them. This is nothing out of the ordinary, but Barbara was pretty appalled by it. Um, no apartment means that there's no kitchen, which means that many employees that Barbara's working with only eat cheap fast food and can't afford fresh food, which overall really impacts their health and their endurance in these jobs. No health insurance for these, these people means that they're basically living off of Tylenol in quick patches. And one of the big concerns for a lot of the people that Barbara ends up working with is that they don't, they can't fix an abscessed tooth. They have to let a tooth rot away in their mouth because they can't afford to get it removed. Um, that there's a woman who's pregnant, she doesn't know how she's going to be able to afford to have a baby. Things like that, small back aches and joint aches that we take for granted that we can go to the doctor to get these looked at. These people have no way to do that. Um, and one other thing is that um, Barbara says that because of the living situation, and needing so much money just to make rent or a down payment that a lot of times what you end up with is these communes of people who are low-wage workers. So people live with their entire extended family. So you'll see a husband and wife, their children, grandma and grandpa, and maybe a brother or sister, aunt and uncles, that type of thing. And they'll all live in, you know, like one trailer in Key West with no air conditioning. Um, so Barbara actually did make enough money to make rent in Florida, but she quit a job, walked out in the middle of it, but she did have enough money. So Key West ended up being a success for her. Then she moved to Maine. Barbara literally moves to Maine because it's a mostly homogenous society. Maine is almost entirely white. 
employee. So Barbara moves to Maine because she feels like there's going to be less competition for her for low-wage jobs, which I think is actually really telling. Um, but the constant at bending and lifting and cleaning um, as part of the maid service is very draining on Barbara. Um, she finds that a lot of times they're having a really hard time. Their backs ache. She literally works for a maid company that says that they will get down on their hands and knees to clean your floor. And she literally does that in every house she visits. One of the big draws for this particular job was supposed to be that there's a 30-minute lunch break. But it turns out that for Barbara, because they have to drive from one house to the next, that that lunch break is sort of the drive time between houses. And a lot of times they end up stopping at gas stations and eating a quick bite. Then on top of that, she notices that other low-wage workers look down on them, look down on the maids, and they're constantly viewed with a lot of suspicion. Um, they're almost like low-wage lepers, the lowest of the low-wage. And it's a pretty bad experience for Barbara. Again, Barbara was able to make enough money to pay for a second month's rent in this location. However, because she was residing in a tourist town and she was there in the off-season, she sort of determined that she was going to need to save up enough money for four months worth of rent to make it possible for her to live in the same town during the busy season, which she said was just really not reasonable. Then, maybe my favorite, Barbara takes on Walmart. So she moves to Minnesota, really for no other reason than she reads a newspaper article and thinks that might be fun. Um, but she never finds adequate housing. She ends up living in a motel that's super sketchy. She doesn't trust her neighbors. She feels very unsafe. And she lives on nothing but fast food. Um, she takes a certain amount of pride in her job at Walmart, but she feels very isolated because she has limited customer and personnel interaction. And she says it's that sort of strategic, that Walmart places people in sort of groups, and those groups don't interact with each other at all. And actually, something that's really interesting is that Barbara tries to get the employees at Walmart to unionize with a little bit of success. Maybe she planted the seeds, but she was pretty proud of that. Now, how that relates to us in higher education. One of the things that's important to realize is that our students come from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds. For instance, if you have a student who's Pell eligible, something that's important to realize is that their estimated family contribution, or EFC, is basically telling you that they live below the national poverty line. Okay? So I want you to think about that for a second, that what Barbara was living for, the situation Barbara was living in for a month, is something that one of our students could potentially live in for, they've been living in for 18 years, 19 years, 20 years, however long they've, they've been in this situation. So you need to be really, really focused on that because it doesn't mean just because someone is poor doesn't mean that they don't work hard. It just means that, you know, they, they haven't had certain advantages sometimes. Um, one of the things that Barbara suffers from, in my opinion, is that she suffers from a sort of intellectual elitism when she talks about the different people that she interacts with. It's almost like she assumes because she has a PhD that she's just naturally more intelligent than people, which is a little alienating for me on a personal level, but she sort of gets over that by the time she gets to Minnesota. She sort of breaks down those barriers and realizes that being successful, and this relates to our students in higher education, being successful is about establishing an academic vocabulary where you work. So for our students, especially our first-gen students, establishing an academic vocabulary is super important. And what I mean by that is 
We use words like Pell all the time in our profession, but our first-gen students may not know what Pell is. So be careful when you're using new words and make sure that when you say things like income verification, that your students know exactly what you're talking about. Um, one of the things I really want to hit on is that many of our students, because of the rising cost of college, they work full-time jobs but are considered the working poor. So we need to make sure that we're extra sensitive to students and recognize that not only are they spending hours in the classroom, but they're also working 40 hours, sometimes 50 hours, at jobs that don't pay that much. And they are struggling to literally have enough money to eat. Now, personal reflections. Low-wage jobs are a swirling vortex of doom. It's our job to make sure that our students don't end up in those situations. We've got to be sensitive to our students working low-wage jobs just to get by in school, those nickel-and-dime type scenarios, and we need to pay attention to the students that we work with because if they're eligible for work-study, then that means that they are particularly prone a lot of time to not having enough resources. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. I look forward to hearing your reflections. Hi, class, and thank you for joining me while I do
Now we're going to have part two. Let's see what we've got up here. We've got Golden Lands Working Hands. We've got Labor History. Rail Workers, Kaiser. There's a strike of Kaiser nurses, mental health professionals saying that uh, there's not nearly enough of them to deal with the mental health problems of the people who come to Kaiser. Um, O'Keefe's Working Hands, what is that? Hand cream in a jar. <laughs> Here it is. Fred Glass, part two of Fred Glass's classic history of the labor movement in California. By your streetcar is George Farris, a rank and file member of the Carpenters Local 22. That we had a class government already. And inasmuch as we are going to have a class government, I most emphatically prefer a working-class government. In 1900, Eugene... We're picking up turn-of-the-century. Known to Los Angeles unionists as the leader of the American Railway Union, he had first come to their city following the Great Pullman Strike of 1894, speaking before huge crowds of workers. During that strike, Debs learned that corporations could force the government to do their bidding against the people. The experience converted him into a socialist and motivated him to run for president. For his running mate, he chose Job Harriman, a skinny Indiana preacher turned lawyer. Calling for restraints on corporations and economic justice for working people, their ticket received 100,000 votes. But the socialist message was just beginning to spread. Harriman had moved to Los Angeles for his health. He soon rose to prominence as a union attorney. Many of his clients were the victims of Otis and the merchants and manufacturers. When Ricardo Flores Magón, a Mexican anarchist labor organizer, is arrested in Los Angeles with his brother under flimsy legal circumstances, Harriman defends him and helps to turn his case into a union cause. General Otis writes in Times editorials that the demonstrations of support for Flores Magón in the Mexican-American community are being conducted by greasers, not of the better kind, of Mexican. Otis is referring to working people such as those who built LA's electric rail system. With the assistance of the Labor Council's Lem Biddle, Mexican workers had gone on strike against El Traque in 1903 and 1904, earning the wrath of Otis and Huntington. We worked in your orchards of peaches and fruits. And we slept on the ground neath the light of the moon. Due to its socialist leadership, the Los Angeles Council of Labor is way ahead of the rest of the labor movement in extending its hand to workers of color. When farm workers reach across barriers of language and race to form the Japanese-Mexican Labor Alliance, Fred Wheeler convinces the all-white labor council to support them in creating the first union in California's fields. Wheeler travels to Oxnard, just north of Los Angeles. He finds a small town.
Its stores and services support the famous Southern California citrus industry. But Oxnard is also surrounded by extensive sugar beet farms beneath the shadow of a massive factory. Built in 1897, the second largest sugar works in the United States, it's owned by the Oxnard family, just one of whom lives within a thousand miles of Oxnard. The Oxnards treat the factory managers well, providing them with large houses and nice parties. Oxnard workers are treated less well, especially the farm workers. Brought by labor contractors from Mexico and Japan to work in the beet fields, they live in places like these. They pay inflated prices for their food and supplies in company stores and work long hours planting, thinning, harvesting, and transporting the sugar beets. Early in 1903, the growers, in an attempt to eliminate the middleman, formed their own labor contracting company. The Japanese and Mexican contractors lose business and workers' wages are cut. Anger helps them to form a union and go on strike. Despite grower-initiated violence reported as a labor riot in the local newspapers, the farm workers stand firm for two months. Few sugar beets make it into the mill. Finally, the bosses back down. With some help from Wheeler, JMLA President Kusuburo Baba, shown here in a photo taken years later, negotiates a settlement restoring workers' pay and giving Japanese and Mexican contractors back their business. Against all odds, the union wins. But its troubles aren't over. The Mexican Secretary of the Alliance, J.M. Lazarus, petitions the National AFL for a union charter. Samuel Gompers responds, It is understood that in issuing this charter to your union, we will under no circumstance accept membership of any Chinese or Japanese. Lazarus and the Mexican members of the Alliance refuse Gompers' condition. They write back, In the past, we have counseled, fought, lived on very short rations with our Japanese brothers, and have toiled with them in the fields, and they have uniformly been kind and considerate. We would be false to them, to ourselves, to the cause of unionism, if we now accepted privileges for ourselves, which are not accorded to them. Without connection to the broader labor movement, the JMLA soon disappears from sight. One of the San Francisco workers who rides your streetcar is George Farris, a rank-and-file member of the Carpenters Local 22. We don't know how he looked because, like most working people back in the day, he left no pictures. But Farris did something unusual by which we do know him. He kept a diary. Like most carpenters, he suffered periods of unemployment. He attended union picnics, was a teetotaler, and took a quiet pride in his craft skills. The wind last night blew down a two-story building on Sacramento Street that was nearly ready for the lathers. But our building stood the wind all right. Farris stopped by the union hall to pick up a straw hat to wear in the Labor Day parade. The parade was splendid. The paper said it was the largest ever seen in San Francisco. It took two hours and 40 minutes to pass a given point. These numbers are reflected in labor's political strength. Among the marchers is waitress Maud Younger, who helps the working women's suffrage movement gain momentum. 
The labor vote also keeps the Union Labor Party in power for much of the century's first decade. But city politics are on a smooth ride for working people. Mayor Schmitz and most of his board of supervisors are implicated along with leading businessmen in a nasty bribery scandal. Soon, this is the least of the city's problems for workers and for everyone else. On April 18, 1906, San Francisco was first shaken by a huge earthquake and then ravaged by fires from ruptured gas mains. Over the next few years, union labor enthusiastically rebuilds San Francisco. You are glad that restoring the streetcar lines is a top priority because you need the work. Due to the emergency, workers and unions agree to suspend work rules and wage increases for a time. But when some bosses take advantage of the situation, labor conflict flares. Your union asks for an eight-hour day at $3 pay to keep up with sharply rising living costs. Patrick Calhoun, owner of the United Railroads, responds by locking you out. Perhaps he knows that in two days, he will be indicted for bribery in the spreading political corruption scandals. The first day of the strike, you are enraged to hear that strikebreakers have fired into a crowd of your brother's streetcarmen, killing two. Peter York, a Catholic priest and union sympathizer, says, Where there is not justice, there cannot be peace. The Labor Council proclaims a boycott. Let every union man, woman, and child keep away from Calhoun's cars. Many middle-class suffragists refuse to support the Carmen. It's not their husbands, sons, and brothers on strike. You are heartened when working women, upset with their middle-class sister's lack of sympathy, show their solidarity with your cause by forming the Independent Wage Earners Suffrage League. You are also pleased with Mayor Schmitz when he rejects Calhoun's request to put police on the streetcars. You'd rather the police pay attention to the scab Carmen and their continuous violence against strikers and the public. But after six months, San Franciscans grow weary of walking and bicycling to work. You lose Schmitz when he is convicted in the Union Labor Party corruption scandals. Calhoun waits you out behind his private army of strike breakers. A political fight erupts between union factions over whether to support the scandal-ridden Union Labor Party. Your union gets caught in the middle, and your strike fund shrinks. Hungry, you are forced back to work at 10 hours a day on the old pay scale. You have been defeated by divisions in the labor movement, by the public taint spread over all unions by the corrupt Union Labor Party, and by the superior resources of capital. Six of your union brothers are dead. The Carmen's Union is crushed, not to be rebuilt for years. Politically, though, things improve. Building Trades Council leader McCarthy rids the Union Labor Party of its corrupt elements. Promising a clean administration, he's elected mayor in 1909. He faces an immediate challenge. San Francisco employers tell him that if the unions do not organize Los Angeles, competition from its cheap labor will bankrupt San Francisco businesses. Business leaders issue a warning go south and organize Los Angeles, or accept the open shop. Early in the morning on October 1st, 1910, explosions rip through the Los Angeles Times building. 
20 newspaper workers die. General Otis immediately accuses unionists of planting a bomb. Labor leaders point out that workers in the building had complained for weeks that gas fumes were making them sick. When Iron Workers Union leader John McNamara and his brother James are kidnapped by private investigators and thrown in jail, accused of the bombing, unionists widely believe that they are being framed. Radical attorney Clarence Darrow is persuaded by Sam Gompers to join Job Harriman on the McNamara's legal team. Contributions for the McNamara's defense pour in. Labor Day 1911 is declared McNamara Brothers Day by Gompers and the National AFL. With the assistance of San Francisco's strong union movement, a major organizing drive is launched in Los Angeles, bringing the number of union members to its highest point ever. The McNamara Brothers case helps stoke simmering feelings of injustice felt by working people. Emotions are further inflamed when at the urging of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, the Los Angeles City Council passes an ordinance banning picketing. Harriman defends scores of union members rounded up, often beaten, and thrown in jail by police enthusiastically enforcing the new law. In the midst of these events, Harriman announces his candidacy for mayor of Los Angeles. At a July 4th rally, he promises to repeal the anti-picketing law half an hour after his election. Harriman wants to convert the city's utilities and railways to public ownership, build public baths, swimming pools and libraries, provide free textbooks in the public schools. In a direct slap at Otis, he promises a publicly financed weekly newspaper. Harriman also pledges to investigate Otis and a number of his rich friends who had profited handsomely from construction of the Los Angeles aqueduct, now nearing completion. Just by coincidence, Otis and his partners owned the land on which the aqueduct terminated, suddenly making their desert holdings extremely valuable. As the primary approaches, John McNamara, while not himself a socialist, endorses Harriman from his prison cell, saying, There is but one way for the working class to get justice, elect its own representatives to office. Even Sam Gompers comes to Los Angeles to urge Harriman's election. Harriman's campaign is headquartered in the Los Angeles Labor Council building, a sign of the growing closeness of labor and the socialists. G.W. Whitley, leader of the Afro-American League, endorses Harriman and runs as a member of his slate for city council, the only black candidate in the election. This is the high tide of the socialist movement in America. In 1911, Hundreds of socialists are elected to local and state office around the country. In 1912, Eugene Debs would receive nearly a million votes for president. Branches of the Los Angeles party are formed by ethnic groups, young people, and women who will be voting for the first time in a municipal election. The primary results become Otis's nightmare. Harriman, in an open primary, places first in a field of five. Labor leader Fred Wheeler receives the highest number of votes of any city council candidate. The newspapers go to red alert. The Express warns that a Harriman victory would signal the end of L.A.'s prosperity. The Times swings its support to the runner-up, George Alexander, for the general election. Harriman assesses his rival. He never heard of a social problem and would not know one if he met it in the street. The Los Angeles Socialist Party, supremely confident, holds huge rallies for Harriman. Unfortunately, there is something Harriman doesn't know. Clarence Darrow realizes the McNamaras are guilty.
To save the lives of his clients, he cuts a secret deal, approved personally by General Otis. Four days before the election, without informing Harriman, the McNamaras switched their plea to guilty. Thousands of disillusioned voters changed their minds about voting for a man associated with admitted bombers. On election day, Harriman loses. John McNamara later blamed Darrow for misinforming him. We were led to believe that the prosecution had evidence to convict some of the most prominent leaders of labor, and that only a confession by Jim and me would or could have saved them from the gallows. It was not to save our lives, but theirs, that finally constrained us to agree to a confession. Stunned union leaders and rank-and-file members all over the country distanced themselves from the McNamaras. Defense contributions dry up. James McNamara is sentenced to life, and John McNamara to 15 years in San Quentin. The Los Angeles Union organizing drive dies with their conviction. For a brief moment, the working people of Los Angeles could almost touch the twin possibilities of political power and unionization. But that potential falls victim to the McNamara's decision to settle labor's score with Otis with a bomb. Although socialists Fred Wheeler and Estelle Lindsay are elected to the city council soon afterward, the Socialist Party begins to decline. This occurs even as some of its demands enter the mainstream, like progressive laws creating workers' compensation and the eight-hour day for women. Job Harriman becomes convinced that the capitalist class is too strong to allow workers to take real power through the ballot box. He helps to form Llano del Rio, a socialist cooperative colony outside Los Angeles, which flourishes briefly. Years later, Eugene Debs reflects, if you want to judge McNamara, you must first serve a month as structural ironworker on a skyscraper, risking your life every minute to feed your wife and babies, and then being discharged and blacklisted for joining a union. Every floor in every skyscraper represents a working man killed in its erection. Okay, for part two of uh, our California labor history, next week we'll take up the 20s, it's entitled Not So Jazzy. But uh, it's a good thing to reflect on, on this chapter, because for a moment, for a moment, political power and unionism were hand in glove, and came very close to dominating the politics of a big city called Los Angeles. And of course, you know, there's a dirty trick. The McNamara's confessed. Some people still say that they were not guilty. They didn't, they didn't bomb, bomb the uh, Times building but they took blame for it to save other people as as expressed in this version
according to Fred, though, they were guilty. And according to a lot of people, uh, they were guilty. And there was no way around that. So a lot of uh, people gave up on, not only on the McNamara brothers, but on socialism and on unionism in general. It took a long time for the labor movement in Los Angeles to recover from that blow. Okay. We've got the rail strike. Railroad unions consider continue their slow creep along the path to a settlement or strike in contract negotiations covering 115,000 workers. On August 16th, the Presidential Emergency Board convened by President Biden issued its recommendations for a settlement. The PEB recommended 22% raises over the course of a five-year contract. dating back to 2020, which would be the highest wage increases rail unions have seen in decades. But they are offset by increases in health care costs and come in the midst of high inflation. The PEB also refused to touch almost any of the union's other demands on work rules and conditions, either denying them outright or suggesting that the unions return to the slow negotiation and arbitration process they have already languished in since November 2019. Three years ago. Unions have been demanding a sick leave policy. Rail workers have no sick days. And the PEB refused them. PEB also refused to take a position on the strict attendance policies that have infuriated so many rail workers. The rail negotiations are one of the largest instances of private sector bargaining in the U.S. in one of the country's most heavily unionized industries. At the table are the major Class 1 freight railroads and 13 rail unions. Think what, how that would slow down business and paralyze the economy. A national rail shutdown, which has not occurred since the early 1990s, would have a major impact. So we'll keep an eye on that. Kaiser mental work, health workers spend Labor Day walking picket lines as the strike enters second week. Let's see if we have this. Getting any 
nothing's coming through here, but let's summarize that. Employees in Kaiser Permanente's Hawaii's as well as San Francisco's mental health unit spent much of the day walking picket lines on September 5th. The striking Kaiser employees are demanding better pay and increased staffing. They say the current pay scale isn't enough to cover the soaring cost of living. Kaiser's mental health employees said they haven't received pay raises to match the cost of living increases because even though they organized four years ago, they don't have a contract with Kaiser. The company says, we are committed to rem remaining an employer of choice for mental health professionals by continuing to offer our employees market-leading wages and benefits. Business like, businesses like restaurants and service providers have seen a steep rise in food and energy costs. And due to the labor shortage, Many establishments have had to increase wages by up to 10% during the past year. Some other cash bonuses. Some offer cash bonuses to new hires. Costs have gone up across the board no matter what business you're in, whether it's just from your direct costs or other overhead. Another one to keep an eye on. Mental health, if you drive past uh, any of the big Kaisers in this area, you'll see a, a picket line. Okay, it's about 11.40, and I did want to play this one by Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor, of course, was a well-known comedian, and I'll say he was a philosopher and a social did social commentary because his work included life and death issues and working people's issues. This is his take on a gun shop. Now remember, you're talking the 1970s. Excuse me, man. I'm sorry. I was looking you at talking the... to me? No, I was looking at... Are you talking to me? No, I was looking at the gun and I backed... You must be talking to me, man. I was... Don't be talking to me, man. <laughs> See that? Um, the guy... Uh... He's around here all the time. Go ahead and look around. Help yourself. I don't have to take that kind of... I mean, you know what I mean? I was coming in and the guy going to be just bumping. Neighborhood nut never touches anybody. Oh. Hey, boy, over here! You don't want me! I don't like you, boy! Come on down to my part of the country. 
show you law and order. The guns are talking to That's him. right. I remember a couple freedom riders just like you. I showed them law and order, all right. Mrs. Mercer said I used to make her feel sexy. We finally got a mugger. The last thing he saw was a fire that came out of my eyes. It was delightful. <laughs> yes. Slowly, gentle, I'm classy. You, yes, you let. Ah, thank you. Ah, in, smooth, total precision, international. That's it, look down the crosshairs. Imagine a man, there, panning across, there. Boom. You got him. It's like I've gotten many people. He better stay away from me. Don't touch me. Don't you put your hands on me. Don't touch me! I mean it. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. If you touch me, I'll blow your fingers off. Don't touch me. But I told you not to touch me. I know what you think. You don't think I have class, do you, huh? I've got class. I've got class. I've killed more than anybody in this room. Kill them, dead. Put me down. Put me down. That's for you better. Easy, easy. Hey, I got a lot of experience, you know. I've been with the force about 14 years already. 14 years. I know, I know. I'm a little worn out, but I can still do the job, huh? Murders, rapes, robberies. I always take care of my guys. That's it. How does that look, huh? A lot of experience in there. That's it. Give it a good look. There'll be a lot of law and order. That's it. Gently. I'm a little old. Thanks. What are those loudmouths? No. They don't know from nothing. I was with the mob in Jersey. Yeah, put me closer. You know what I'm talking about? I know things that can... Uh, I like it in the air, too. Hmm? Take a quick squeeze. Huh, punk? Chicken. <laughs> I'm just a nice little gun, but they make me do things I don't mean. I killed a little kid last week. I didn't mean it. Didn't mean it. I didn't even know. I didn't even know I was loaded. And, but it did. It went off. I don't like this. Take me away. I don't want to be a gun. 
Use me for something else. Make me a wagon. Make me a bicycle. Please? No. Take me. Take me. Freeze right there. Don't pay any attention to the inferior. Yes. I've killed before. Look at me. Totally superior. A weapon of ethnic purity. There. Notice all precision. Yes, people don't understand the necessity to kill. My previous owner? Ah, uh, them need not talk of him. Yes, people enjoy killing each other. Look. Look down the side now. Don't shake your head. Touch me. See anything you like? No. Huh? Uh, no. Richard Pryor's take there on uh, guns. And by implication, of course, gun control. And as we finished up that one, we're uh, about ready to go. Time to go. This is the B telling you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work... You're on the menu. I hope you know that. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Have a good week. Have good work. Remember, to live a good life, have a great cause. This is the beast signing off. Until we meet again next week, right here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st corner of Florida. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. 
From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you yeah. sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit faced McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government. And it's personal, as the Enigma brokers have already cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessex's The Enigma Brokers is the first book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I was just leaving the theater. Convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. I it up here. And I started to do some thinking. Around in it on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon to two. On the freeway. Good I am a total John Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide. Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, until Gruber double-crossed him. 
Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. handcrafted leather goods look no further dr west let's talk about one of your favorite skins. subjects a local mission a leather working shop all original pieces handcrafted for you jackets belts purses jewelry everything made out of leather you need your bicycle seat fixed you want it in cool leather under can do it you have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff talk to under go to skinonskins.com that's s-k-i-n-o-n-s-k-i-n-s.com you just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather go see under everything is handcrafted and understated quality fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs he also does fixes maybe you love that jacket he'll put the zipper back in Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank releases on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. This support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute 43.5 million pounds of food this year. Enough for 93.000 meals every day. But they can't do it without volunteers. Visit www.sffoodbank.org 
slash volunteer. Again, www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how you can help. Download a podcast and you can listen on.